Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. How much are you paying for petrol at the moment? Uh, Tom was... Tweeting at the weekend, Tom Hickey tweeting at the weekend that he was past a garage, 167.9. That's like a 170 a gallon, practically, a litre. Sorry, 170 a litre for petrol in some garages at the moment. And they're talking about it going up again in the budget tomorrow. Sweet, suffered and merry. Good morning to you, Monday, 1850-715-996. Before I start, very, very proud day in Coogan Towers. It is the 11th of October, which means it is the twins' birthday. They turn 24 today. Sweet Lord. 24 years old today, so happy birthday to James and Gemma. Uh, Two fine young people of whom myself and their mother are extraordinarily proud. And that's all I'm going to say. Now... What happened at this GA match up the country? We're talking last week only about referees in soccer and referees being bullied and threatened and chased in the car park and walking out of matches because of the level of abuse that's going on. Then there was a match actually, was it abandoned up in County Wicklow somewhere? Andrew Ryan, sports reporter with the Irish Sun, joins me. Andrew, where did this happen and what happened? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so uh, Wicklow GA have said that they've opened an investigation into uh, the violent scenes that you alluded to that took place after after a juvenile football match on Saturday afternoon. Um, a video that circulated on social media over the weekend appears to show uh, people at the match fighting following the under-15D football championship final between Kilcool and Carney Emmons in Valdekill. Um, it's understood the match was all was over at the time. Um, in a statement, uh, Wicklow GA strongly condemned what they called unacceptable behaviour at the match and said that they would take strong disciplinary action against any individuals found to be involved. There's no evidence, um, I think it's worth mentioning, there's no evidence in the video to suggest any of the players themselves were involved 
and both clubs have since declined to comment. Which in a way kind of makes it a, a little bit worse. It was an under-15D match between, am I right, Carnew and Kilcool. There was no kids involved yeah. in the video I saw. It was all so-called adults, like, beating each other up around the place and, and causing... Like, does anyone know how it started, Andrew? Um. Well, first of all, I think you're you're quite uh, right in saying so-called adults because um, it seems that the kids were behaving more uh, more maturely than the adults were. Um, but I, I, I've heard different things about how it possibly started, but nothing's been confirmed formally. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult to say. Um, all that we know is from the video, um, which yeah, it's very distressing. I'm like. Though, like little niggly scraps happen at matches, yes, nothing to that degree. And the fact that that sort of thing happens at a at a kids' match is um, it's it's quite horrible to see, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, and it's being investigated by the clubs, and they're they're now saying no more about it. Uh, the Wicklow GA, the Wicklow County Board, have investigate are investigating it. Um, it's before the send the competitions control committee. Um, right. so they'll be analysing any evidence, any eyewitness accounts and the referee's report which generally comes in a few days after yeah. the match itself. Okay, alright, listen, leave it there for now. Andrew, thank you, that's Andrew Ryan uh, from the Irish Sun. This video was flying around the weekend, dropped into my WhatsApp and it was an under-15s match, so what age would the kids be? What age are they for under-15s? 13, 14? The really good players might be 12 and they weren't involved. So if you can imagine, like, what kind of example is it setting to youngsters of 12, 13 and 14 when their parents are acting like this? Their parents, their mentors, the people around them, the adults, the so-called responsible adults are poking each other and pulling clumps out of one another's hair after a match. What example is that setting? What should happen to those people? Is It's from County Wicklow, but anecdotally, at least, you hear reports of stuff happening every weekend at club games. Parents shouting at each other on the sideline, rowing and bawling and screaming and roaring at a kids' match. What is going on? 1850-715-996. Your thoughts on what, what, would, what, should, what, what should happen? Like if that was two Cork clubs, I'm not going to name any clubs, but if that was two Cork clubs and that happened, what would we do about it? What should be done about it? Just on the student food bank, I see where the GoFundMe is now up to over 24,000 and this fabulous uh, gesture by Aldi, who've come in with a fortune worth of uh, vouchers and 50, but... Collis has fair, blue, fair dues to Aldi, etc. But we know at least 50% of the students were able to blow huge money on drink every Thursday. But they don't support their fellow students. They talk a big talk about social justice. I had this discussion with someone over the weekend and I mentioned the big party in Washington Street and I mentioned the old thing about, well, they always seem to have enough for a drink. And the thing that comes back is that's all you see. You don't see the ones who are not out because they can't afford to go out. You don't see the ones who are not out drinking because they can't afford to eat, let alone drink. So thanks for that. AC50 715 996. 
Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Let me show you what it's all about. Check it out. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Afternoons in Cork sound better here. I've got the big tunes from all your favourite artists. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. Hi, this is Billie Eilish. What's happening everybody it's Tom Gwennon I'm always good for a prize oh thank you so much that's brilliant thanks a million and big name stars on the show for a chat Joel Curry personally Ireland is my favourite place to play you guys know it's like a second home to me and I miss it so much in the afternoon in Cork in the car at work at home make sure you're with me Simon Murdoch, midday to 4 p.m. on Corks 96 FM. We love to get your WhatsApp voice notes, whatever they're about. 083 396 96 96. Pop us a voice note and send it away, and we will do the rest. Mary wants us to point something out. PJ, please can you tell people to light up today? It's really foggy out there. Um, I'm driving from Blarney to the north side, and the amount of people that do not have fog lights on is unreal. Please light up. Actually, I'm looking across from Studio One now, and normally I can see the the airport hill from here. And what actually is the city across the city itself is as clear as gin. But as you look out towards the airport, it's like someone unrolled a sheet of cotton wool and sat it down on top of the city. Thanks for that, Mary. So if you are on the outskirts driving in towards the city, uh, great. Uh, please do put your lights on. Please, please do put your lights on. Thank you for that, Mary. 1850 Why do we put up with the state of our hospitals? A question asked by a very senior doctor over the weekend Her, himself or his name rather is Professor Ronan Collins he's a Cork man he's consultant physician in geriatric and stroke medicine at Tala Hospital and he joins me now a very stark article Ronan I read it at the weekend good morning to you Good morning, and a proud conceal man, I might add, PJ. Good for you, good for you, sir. And on that note, I think just a, a word of congratulations uh, to John Murphy uh, from Conceal, who had another outstanding round in the Open de España uh, there yesterday. A real, real great prospect. And, Isn't you know, he just? A, a real fantastic uh, uh, Cork sportsman just starting out on his professional career, so best of luck to John too. And so say all of us. Ronan. The state of our hospitals, you asked the simple question, why do we put up with them? You work in our hospitals. First of all, why are they in the state they're in? Well, I, I suppose there's an evolution of, of the hospital system in general over you know, decades of years. Um, and there's been a slow move away from what started out like Nightingale wards uh, to almost like um, um, community housing of people with illness. Uh, probably inherited from an era when there was a lot of infectious illness and people were cohorted together. Um, and then to a more modern thinking, really, that the accommodation in hospitals really needs to be a little bit more mindful of um, hospital-acquired infection, but also more mindful of the actual need for people to feel secure, um, to feel kind of you know, relaxed, um, and also to feel kind of, you know, and not to be psychologically uh, and physically uh, kind of worsened by the hospital environment. Uh, and I suppose most of us 
many of us, I suppose, really in the professions and nursing and healthcare would feel that most for modern hospital bed stock is now outdated and not suitable for purpose. I think the pandemic has probably even shown a greater focus on that. And I suppose what I'm asking, I suppose, what I was trying to point out in the article is that my opinion is one thing, uh, but I suppose there does need to be a bit of a discussion about this at all levels of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you make the point that we've over 700 vacant consultant posts. Recruitment of nursing staff is an ongoing challenge. And you say poor working environment is an important factor. Are you saying that our health service, you clearly are saying our health service, is not an attractive place for someone to seek work? The environments are very difficult to work in. Um, the way some of our bedstock and wards are laid out is very unfair to patients, in my opinion. But it's also extremely difficult for staff in order to try and look after patients with, with privacy, um, with dignity, um, and to give them time and care uh, the way the environment is structured. Um, and, and that's a relevant factor. Um, you, know, you can't encourage people to work in environments that are, 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 are very challenging all the time. Uh, and we have a turnover problem. And we have people fleeing the hospitals, both at medical level, at nursing level, um, at health and social care uh, professional level, um, to take up your know, better environment jobs or in the community, uh, in private hospitals or indeed abroad where uh, the health service has been more modernised. And the it's con- a challenge. Constant um, horror stories coming out of the ED, say at CUH or any other ED in the country, Limerick being a particularly bad one and I'm sure in Dublin they're just as, as busy patients on trolleys or even plastic chairs for days and nights on end and I'm sure you and your colleagues walking around watching these people knowing it's not right but do you feel powerless that you can't do anything about it? Well, the first thing to say is that the emergency department is one issue, and that's an issue about admission um, and whether people needed to attend the emergency department, then the, you know, the capacity of the hospital to deal with the admissions, and that's one aspect of the problem, uh, to understand the demand on the services and the capacity we have. Uh, and you know, some of that needs to be addressed as well in a preventative fashion, in a primary care fashion and resourcing, um, because not everything that turns up in the emergency department needs to be admitted. That being said, a good bulk of it does. Uh, and so then we do need the capacity and better designs for emergency department. But I was also getting that, and that once people are admitted to hospitals, most of our wards across our hospital system um, is now of a very poor accommodation standard, in my opinion. It's very difficult to give patients privacy. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to give patients kind of um, proper care. Um, and in some respects, the psychological and physical impact of the hospital environment on patients very often actually worsens people's condition, particularly older people. Um, you will know locally, for example, there was an appeal launched by my colleagues who work in geriatric medicine, Cork University Hospital, through the CUH charity um, for um, a dignity ward, for a complete refurbishment and upgrading mm. the design uh, of the wards that look after, have a special interest in looking after age-related healthcare and older population. And, you know, uh, and I would support that, but it's kind of sad in a way um, that we have to actually appeal to a charity to try and actually recognise the fact that we have a problem on our boards. Um, and you know, I, I, my, own, my own feeling on this is that when you work in the system, and obviously I've worked not just in Ireland but in the UK, it's, it's not a problem to one hospital nor indeed to one country. Um, and I would have, you tend to get almost 
uh, accustomed to what you see and treat it as being normal. Mm. It's only when you actually sit back and try and put yourself in a patient's shoes and see the hospital ward from the patient's experience, you begin to realise that some of this really is not really of a standard we should be aiming for and we need to do better. And I suppose what I would be asking for is, number one, a discussion about it, and number two then, to start setting some minimum standards uh, of accommodation uh, and, and care standards within our hospitals. I mean, I, I raised this once before when I was visiting another hospital as part of a, another job in terms of stroke programme, mm. and there happened to be an inspection team in the hospital, and I pointed out to them, I said, look at the space between the beds there. Do you think that's adequate? Uh, to which, you know, I was told, well, that's not on our inspection checklist. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not good enough. It should be a fundamental um, you know, we need far more. The majority of our housing stock, our accommodation stock, should be single-roomed with individualised private bathrooms for all sorts of reasons. I mean, many older people, many people in hospital in general are sick. Um, and, you know, people in hospital have complex care needs. Um, you know, people need to be allowed to vomit in privacy. They need to be allowed to be, you know, have diarrhea and have being content and not make it in time in relative privacy uh, because that is the nature of being medically unwell uh, and our system doesn't facilitate that and I think at times it can be relatively dehumanising both for patients and staff to try and cope with the wards the way we have them That's a very profound thing you've just said people need to be able to have privacy to vomit and privacy to have diarrhea yeah, they do, and people also need to have the privacy to emotionally express themselves. You know, it's very difficult on a ward, um, you know, when you, you've got bad news, even to be given bad news. At times, across our hospital system, we don't have places to bring patients to even tell them bad news. Um, and so you're trying to have a hushed conversation, which can be very serious at times, behind a plasticated curtain, and, you know, that really is not good enough. Um, and uh, you know, I, it, this is not a single institution problem. Um, this is across our country, and in my experience, was quite prevalent in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. But I think until society has a discussion about what our hospitals should look like, we're not going to move. I mean, I laud the fact that Children's um, Health Ireland. I'm not going to get into a debate about how much it's costing, uh, but Children's Health Ireland you know, have at least pushed the agenda to say that we want proper accommodation for children's healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they've got um, a brand new hospital in St. James's uh, being built and two other units, um, um, uh, one in Tallinn, one in Connolly as well, which will be of a modern standard. Now, the bulk of our population that get very sick, uh, the majority of them are older people, mm-hmm. uh, are adults. And it's when we look at our, your teaching hospital systems, and I'm focused on our teaching hospital systems, so I'm talking about this, they really need a, a refit. And I suppose what I would be saying, number one, is that there need to be a, a societal discussion about it. I think our public representatives need to wake up to the fact and, and look at the reality uh, of the accommodation in our healthcare system. And then I think we need an organised programme of refit and redevelopment of mm-hmm. our public teaching hospitals uh, and to put the public faith uh, and also pride for those who actually attend the hospitals and those who work in the hospitals back into our teaching university hospital system, which is the system for all. Um, and I do worry, um, and I'll be honest, I do worry about the way Sloan to Care was configured. Yeah. Is that what it would result in really is that, as I said, the two tiers 
of where I choose to go to be treated and where I have to go to be treated. Yes. And, and there's a fundamental difference in that. You say in you say Slaunch Care is correct and ambitious in its aim to provide more care in the community, but it won't solve our hospital problems. So you're saying Slaunch Care, as it's presently planned out, won't solve the problems we've just been talking about. Well, what will? Well, it, it, the problem is, is that you can't have overemphasis just on the community. I mean, you can't treat acute heart attacks or acute stroke or cancer surgery or you know, serious pneumonias, you can't treat that in the community. So you still need a hospital system. Now, I had one experience of this kind of transformative healthcare maybe when I was a younger doctor in the UK, and I saw, for example, the funding arm being put into primary healthcare trust. And, and, and what you got then was got you got a skewed view of things, where there was massive investment into the community, which essentially stripped the hospitals of all their manpower um, and a lot of their resources, and, and then we had, a, we had a bigger problem in our acute hospitals because we still needed to treat these. So you need a balanced approach. Mm-hmm. You have to invest in primary care because primary care is the fundamental of preventing health from deteriorating, from preventing many of these conditions. People developed. coming to hospitals that don't exactly. actually need to be there. Lastly, and briefly, Professor Collins, um, you, you say that there's no point in bank holidays, there's no point in talking about bonuses, if all this is going to continue? Well, my own view, and it's a personal view, but I don't think I'm alone in this view. Many of us feel in the health service, and I'm not just talking about maybe what people would view as well-paid doctors. Many of us in the health service feel that to try and this discussion about rewarding frontline staff could potentially be socially divisive. It could also be internally divisive, to be honest with you, um, uh, and so I feel if you ask people in general, people would say, do you know what, if you actually gave us a program that you're going to invest in improving um, the actual environments inside in our hospitals, we'd actually probably prefer that. All right, listen, thank you for your time this morning. Uh, Professor Ronan Collins uh, from Kinsale, very proud of that fact, but based at Tala Hospital in Dublin, where he's a geriatrician and stroke consultant. Thank you, Dr. Collins. 1850-715-996. Just that particular line that stands out, people need the privacy to vomit. People need the privacy to have diarrhea and maybe not make it to the toilet. People need the privacy to be told bad news and to grieve for bad news in our hospitals. And in his own view as a very experienced professional, it's not there. Courts 96 FM. Some reactions to Dr. Ronan Collins. Call us that I was there for hours. The conditions, the staff from the cleaners to the consultants have to work under is absolutely appalling. I could hear all the medical history of the man next to me and the nurse was trying to keep it private. But it was just impossible. They were kind and caring to me, though, when I thought I might have a heart incident. It just turned out to be a pain from my rib cage. Thank you for highlighting this. As a nurse, it's so, so hard to provide the care we want to our patients. So the standard we know we can because of the work environment. And Don says, Hi, with all the talk of rewards to workers and creating a divide, a bank holiday should be given. And that day should be a day of reflection and to remember our loved ones who passed away from COVID. And on the Trust Me, I'm a Doctor song, Cormac says, excellent song and music composition, fond resemblance to Queen and even the Muppets. Love it. Big shout out to Norma, a nurse in the Mercy. 
kindly looking after my mum, Siobhan, after her appendicitis operation. Thanks, Cormac. 1850-715-996. Tomorrow's the budget day, and we'll be talking about it extensively uh, throughout the programme. What would you like to see before the announcement is made? What are we likely to see when the announcement is made around lunchtime? It'll be all in tomorrow morning's papers, but we want to know from you as well what you'd like to see as a priority. That's for tomorrow. But let's check in with one group of people looking to the budget with interest tomorrow. And that's the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Their new president is Joe McKeown, who is a Corkman. And he joins me now. Joe, good morning. Uh, good morning, PJ. Congratulations on your installation as president. Thank you very much indeed. Coming up to the budget tomorrow, what measures does the INTO want to see? It's been a very interesting, or one might say, a difficult year and a half or nearly two years now. It has, and I think the first thing we want to see is a reduction in class size. Uh, we still have the largest class sizes in Europe, in the European Union, and you know we're the only group that had to implement COVID rules, regulations in classes where there are more than 30 children. Uh, and we think the Minister has an opportunity right now to reduce the class size. Just a modest reduction of one pupil per class uh, would make a significant difference And if she were to continue that for the next two years again, we would then be down to the European average and class size would no longer be an issue. So that's our number one priority. Would that involve hiring many, many teachers? It would involve hiring about 350 teachers uh, who will will be coming out of our colleges of education anyway. Um, The number of pupils is reducing. Uh, It will not require uh, a huge amount of investment because if we keep the same number of teachers and the um, the number of pupils reduces, then that the demographic dividend will, will will bring about a reduction in class size. So we're not talking about significant extra expenditure. I think four million euro in next year's budget will will cover it, um, and it's something the the minister should do. But we also want to see support for school leaders. I think that's really really important. Mm. Um, and you'll have known from your own program, uh, teaching principals particularly, um, two thousand teaching principals at primary level. They really do need support and certainty. Uh, they need time from their teaching duties to, to deal with administrative mm. uh, tasks. Um, and they need, they need help and assistance as they do their job. So those two things are the, the, the big issues for us tomorrow. Okay. And we'll, we'll judge the budget really on those. Joe, I spoke to a couple of teachers a, a week or two ago when we were talking about this proposed bonus for frontline mm-hmm. workers, which seems to have been quietly shelved pre-budget. What it will happen afterwards, we don't know just yet. But one of the two of the teachers that I spoke to said very clearly they don't want any proposed bonus. What they want is better safety features in classrooms and other such facilities. Well, the first thing I'd say about uh, any proposed bonus is that we in the INTO support the payment of a bonus to frontline health workers uh, and I think they just want to make that very very clear mm. that we do believe that those who worked on the front line in the health service do deserve an acknowledgement mm. of the risks to their lives. But did you but, not jointly sign a document with the other teaching unions Joe saying that you want a slice of that too? No what we said was that we wanted to be involved and that's the, the next point I was going to make PJ that if you know one, once the, the, the frontline health workers are looked after we want to be involved in any discussions that go beyond that. But being involved in the discussions means exactly what those teachers said to you. We want to look at how are our schools going to be post-COVID? 
not necessarily even about the safety during the pandemic phase, but as we as we get vaccinated, how are we going to have the supports for pupils in our schools and for staff in our schools pre-pandemic? Um, what kind of emotional supports are we going to provide to children? What kind of, are we going to have the smaller classes? Um, are we going to have the support for children with special education needs? And that would be the better monument. And I think your, your, your caller that you had earlier on uh, that you read out, I think is really important. We need to get away from a divisive debate. Let's all support the, the, the frontline health workers getting something. And then let's think of a fitting uh, way to commemorate it that will unite everybody, public and private sector mm-hmm. workers, in, 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 in uh, uh, moving forward to the next stage. An issue that came up on this programme last week and subsequently was picked up in, in other media is the banking of hours. Now, it's a difficult enough one for the ordinary lay person to understand, but the banking of hours has been stopped now for special education teachers, that kind of thing. Where, where do you stand on, on that, Joe? Surely it was useful, it was very useful, and well, now that it's stopped, some children will lose services. Yeah, and I think that that's the, the key part, just for, for your listeners, you're, you're quite right, it is complicated. But, but in, in short, if a teacher who provides special education support to a pupil has to step into a class on a particular day before last Wednesday, the school could replace that teacher on some other day and the child would get the time in a different way. And that's been stopped and it's wrong. And it, should, it was stopped in the middle of the year and schools that have already been operating the system don't know where they stand. And it means from here on in that special edu- children with special education needs are going to be asked to pay a price for uh, providing cover in mainstream classes. And that's really unacceptable to us, and we hope the Minister will reconsider. We're looking to meet her. Uh, we'll, we'll be meeting with the Department, certainly, on Wednesday of this week, and we'll be raising our concerns. Well, that'll be that. interesting for, for people who were listening, particularly some of the parents who contacted the show in the wake of the conversation we had. So the INTO is on this one, and you've, 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 asked, it for, you've asked for it to be reversed. We, we certainly have asked for it to be reversed, and we will be meeting with the Department on Wednesday. Uh, to make the case that this was a wrong move on, on, on the part of the department. Now, I suppose looking at the last 18 months and the pandemic in particular, Joe, mm-hmm. what has it taught us about learning from home, Zoom teaching, maybe hybrid learning? Is there a future there, realistically? Well, there is, and uh, it certainly is, is uh, I suppose the phrase that's being used now is blended learning. And, and not just in Ireland, but across Europe, uh, there's a view that we need to look at blended learning if it makes learning better. <laughs> and there are certain circumstances where, where, where it will. But I think at primary level, what we have learned is this. You cannot expect parents who are working from home to replace what's been done in schools. Uh, but what has happened in the pandemic is there's been better communication within parents and teachers because they're, they're, they're linking in through various online platforms, and that's good. But you, you, there are huge issues in relation to connectivity. Um, to, to access, access to devices is one thing, but access to reliable broadband is another. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fact that parents now are moving back out of the home to work. So we've learned that home can't replace school, but that home and school can work together. Digital technology has a place to pay in that, but it needs to be accessible to all pupils, 
Mm. not just those who can afford it. Some, some of our correspondents, i.e. parents, over the last 12 to 18 months noticed, particularly if they had two or three children, they said, well, little Sean's teacher is brilliant. He's on every morning and there's Zoom this and t- whatever other one they were using. But then Susan's teacher, well, he's not so great. We hear from him a couple of times a week. There, there seemed to be no structure as such, for the delivery of it, did, did you did uh, did the union take a, a particular stance on a structure there? Well, I think the first thing that happened was that in the first lockdown there was a, a great deal of unevenness because it happened so suddenly, and people were just getting their systems in place. I think in the second lockdown there was certainly a lot more consistency, but I think too there, there, there's a, a difference in expectations. There's kind of a view that if you were doing Zoom classes, you were doing great stuff. Whereas there were other ways of providing support. There were a lot of teachers who were uh, recording themselves doing things and sending it off, but not doing necessarily live lessons. And I suppose what the schools that got very little recognition were the very, very many schools who continued to provide actual hard copies of stuff and send it out and who also provided food and support to needy families. But I do think that in any situation where you have 3,000 schools and 50, 000, well, 43,000 teachers mm. in the Republic of Ireland, you're going to have unevenness unless you have proper training and proper professional development and clarity about what standards are expected. If, if blended le- learning becomes a, a future thing, as in we realise there were certain elements of it that worked and we take them forward, d- do teachers maybe in training, Joe, need... Do they need, do they, yes, they need I mean, that added to their training? Do they need a different kind of training to deal with well, the, the hybrid work? Well, 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 there's no question about it that teachers need proper training in relation to blended learning. That's absolutely key. But the other supports need to be there as well. So, for example, in your own place of work or for a lot of people, if their laptop or something breaks down, there's technological assistance available. Well, if you're going to have that in school, you're going to need technological support available to people readily. But professional development and training is really, really important as we as we move forward. Uh, and there's no doubt about it. Digital learning is going to be an aspect of what happens in the future. And the training of teachers is critical both before they come into the schools and while they're in schools. Something that comes up frequently on the programme, at least once every year, we get an email or a call from a parent wondering why little Johnny is still getting homework. Is, is there a need for homework if all the work of the day is being done in school? Isn't the day long enough without another stressful couple of hours in the evening for mom and pupils as they struggle with homework? Uh, absolutely. And I think as a, as a teacher of uh, teaching for, for, for many years myself, uh, I, I think if we could have a sensible approach to homework, it would be, it would be a good thing. What would and be a, a sensible approach? A, sens- a sensible approach to homework would be uh, an acknowledgement that, for example, now it's possible to, to make sure that work can be sent home that's active, that involves uh, uh, um, doing things rather than just learning things, uh, and perhaps that isn't necessarily something that has to be done every single night just simply to be checked off the next morning. There's no doubt about it for many years uh, as a teacher. If I said there was a night off homework, it is the parents who were the happiest because it relieved so much stress. So I think I would absolutely say that we don't need to continue doing the homework that we have been doing in the way that we have been doing it with having some link between 
what's done in home and what's done in school is important. Parents reading with their children at home is important. Yeah. Parents involved in activities is important. It wouldn't be a good thing if a child stopped their schoolwork and went home and parents didn't know what was happening at all. Mm-hmm. Any day, I think so, so a reason to open the school bag and go through the books, yeah. but not necessarily a whole list of sums and spellings and learning it's, off and writing and reading. There's no need for that anymore. Or no, is and I, w- I would certainly say this. Look, if homework is an argument, then it should be possible to end it by simply sending a note into the teacher to say, this didn't work for us last night. You know, and I think that uh, a more reasoned approach is, is, is really important. Mm. Mind you, there's the other argument then that says, well, homework as a child teaches you that in the real world of real life, you do sometimes have to take work home. And that's absolutely true. But I think that, you know, we don't have to teach children by the age of 11 everything they're going to need when they're adults. Uh, We need to let children who are young be young and be children. And that's, that's the key bit there. And I think a sensible link between home and school, a sensible use of activities is important but pointless learning off of stuff that causes grief and anxiety. And we need to recognise, too, that children are now doing homework in situations where both parents are often out working during the day. The parents are tired and anxious as well in the evenings. And a lot of the homework is now being done in after-school clubs or homework clubs of one sort or another. So, of course, we need to review it and reevaluate it. And I guess if everyone is stressed in the evening with regard to homework and learning off and all that, it doesn't help with mental health. This is Mental Health Week. We're a big focus of it all week long. Is there a place in the curriculum, Joe McKeown, for a formal mental health module, say, in the schools? There's certainly a need for for mental health support. And even before the pandemic, and I was working as a principal uh, at that stage, we would all say the number of children coming forward with anxiety issues just had exploded. And you also have to remember that, incredibly, the number of children uh, who are homeless, who are coming into school, we, we ended up having to issue guidance to schools, as to, along with Focus Ireland, as to how to deal with when a child says they're homeless. Okay. So uh, the issue of anxiety and mental health is really important. And two things need to happen. We have a very good social personal health education and well-being is, is going to be a feature of that. But secondly to that, <clears throat> it's important to have some sort of counselling services available. Uh, and we ourselves, the INTO, along with Bernardo's and various other charities who work with children, have written to the Minister saying that you need to provide some accessibility uh, to schools and to children for emotional counselling, be it play therapy or art therapy, because we would say even before the pandemic, the number of children in primary schools talking about suicide, talking about anxiety uh, and coming up to their teachers or their principals and just mentioning those issues, you know, had gone to alarming levels and it certainly needs to be addressed. Okay. Lastly, Joe, let me read you something that's come in on the phone mm. while we've been talking and the mm. number of different subjects that we have covered. And I'll ask you to finish up then by by responding to it. I really don't know what's going on with education in Ireland. The teachers have fabulous pay, fabulous conditions, fabulous job security and fabulous holidays. Yes, it's a stressful job, but so are a lot of other jobs without those perks. We've just come out of COVID and the stress other people were under was a lot more, a lot worse. As regards parents and homework, 
We're one of the best educated countries in the world, and that's partly down to homework. If you don't have homework, children will come to regard the lessons as a necessary evil between socialising and school and watching TV or going online at night. The fact they'll need to answer questions, etc. at night keeps them motivated. Don't parents want their children to thrive? Some old school values there. Are times changing, Joe? Times are changing, uh, and I suppose uh, my response to your your call there was, first of all, I haven't complained once about teaching as a job or in any way. I I enjoyed it myself when I was doing it, and and teachers do. But as regards homework, it's just about looking at the world we're in. The homework that your listeners are referring to was given when children were doing the homework at home. My point is that now the context is different. Two parents out working because they have to be out working. Uh, children doing homework after school hours in homework clubs, it probably has, a, and we need to take a different approach to it now than we did in the past. Okay, listen, I wish you good luck in your tenure as president of the NTO, and we'll no doubt speak again. That's Joe McKeown from Cork, new president of the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Your thoughts on what he's been saying? 1850 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie All the stars on one show. This is Duralipa. Hi, this is Tiesto. Hi, this is Shane Conn. Hey, this is Amory. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. This is Joe Corey. I go by the name of The Weeknd. The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks on your radio. Weeknights from 8. With Newmarket Motors Volkswagen. Test drive the all-electric ID4 at Newmarket Motors or visit newmarketvolkswagen.ie for more. Cork's 96 FM. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Gorgeous morning out there now, although it is very, very, very foggy. Let's remind us again of Orla's message to us earlier this morning on WhatsApp voice note. PJ, please can you tell people to light up today? It's really foggy out there. Um, I'm driving from Blarney to the north side and the amount of people that do not have fog lights on is unreal. Please light up. Right, Ola, thank you for that. And if you ever want to get us a quick message, get your voice on the air, not necessarily have time for a phone call, you want to do more than just a text, pop it into a WhatsApp voice note, 083 396 96 96, and we get it for you. Mental health awareness. Well, yesterday was International Mental Health Day, and then it leads into the whole Mental Health Awareness Week. And we'll be talking about it a fair bit as we go through this particular week. Interesting stat. Kind of a frightening stat, actually. Almost three quarters of hospital staff working in the country's two largest emergency departments during COVID-19 showed signs of burnout, according to the results of new medical research. It was uh, researchers at UCC found 74% of staff at St. James's in Dublin and COH recorded signs of burnout. There's a, a standardised test that has been devised international standards to to see if you are on at, at burnout level, and they found seventy four percent had crossed the threshold where they were in either in danger of 
or actually in full burnout. Uh, under substantial occupational strain, says the report. Uh, they couldn't establish an actual link between COVID and high burnout. But if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck uh, and all of that. 1850-715-996. Let us talk to Dr. Margaret O'Rourke. She's a clinical psychologist and the clinical director of Egg Doct, which is based here in Cork. Dr. O'Rourke, good morning to you. Good morning. Tell me first of all what a Geishduct actually is. Well, a Geishduct is a, a national charity uh, based in Cork uh, and it has a focus on uh, relationships and um, improving, strengthening and um, advocating for relationships. So it's it's helping families and communities um, to improve relationship okay. for mental health and for, for well-being. Yeah. You've spent your career supporting well-being and performance by helping people to manage their stress. When you heard the findings of that burnout survey, it must worry you. Um, well, it, yes, of course it worries me. Um, it doesn't surprise me, sadly, um, because this has been a problem for quite a considerable time. The last 10 years have seen huge increases in, in toxic stress and burnout in medicine and nursing and in the healthcare professions. And um, so you're talking about the survey at the weekend. Mm. Um, yes, that is concerning. Um, uh, but the latest uh, kind of a, a recent global study in, in 2016 um, across 43 countries found very similar uh, results. So the medicine and nursing and healthcare professionals are actually in the HSE are beginning to realise this and to, to look seriously about what they can do. So what we've been doing at the School of Medicine in, in UCC is is not just thinking about um, building up personal resilience and uh, professional resilience, but actually thinking what the systems can start to, mm-hmm. to do. So this study is very interesting from the point of view of looking at um, CUH and St. James's and saying, look, uh, the burnout rates are of concern. Mm-hmm. And so we need to step up really what we're doing. Um, Margaret, so, what, what actually is burnout? I mean, there's workplace stress uh, of different levels in every workplace. And I can imagine working on the health front line for the last 18 months must have been unbelievably stressful. But what is the difference yes. between stressed and burnt out? Okay, so I suppose the best way to understand it is that there's there's three levels. Stress is is just the 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 hassles and and uh, things of of everyday life. So it could be the traffic going into work, um, it could be kind of people not turning up on time for appointments or whatever. So those are those are just hassles that everybody has to deal with and uh, stresses and strains of life. Mm. And then when it comes to healthcare providers, there's extraordinary stress. So there's a lot of things going on in your normal working day that actually the normal person on the street would find quite stressful. So death, trauma, distress, diagnoses. Um, It's very stressful Mm. for nursing and doctors to see patients on trolleys, to see people. 
uh, operations being cancelled. That's extremely stressful for the patient, but it's also very upsetting for the, the staff as well. So that extraordinary stress is just part and parcel of the of the day's work in medicine. And then there's toxic stress and toxic stress is the precursor for burnout. And essentially what that is, is unmanaged stress. So you you kind of, your energy is being burned, burned, burned. You're not getting a chance to decompress. You're not getting a chance to recover. You've got to just keep going and you start to get exhausted. So mm. burnout is the kind of, the end of it all when, when people haven't, they've been working more hours than they can physically cope with. They're seeing stuff that is actually extraordinarily upsetting. They're not getting step back time. They're not getting recovery time. A lot of doctors and nurses are not getting their meals on time or breaks. And they they would start shifts kind of dehydrated. And um, so it leads to very dedicated people um, who love their jobs, who work very hard for their jobs, actually just kind of losing energy and becoming the three main symptoms are emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. So that means, you know, they have a feeling of no matter what I do, it's not going to make a difference. Mm. Um, And then the third horrible symptom is a low sense of personal accomplishments, a sense of, you know, I'm not a good doctor. I'm not a good nurse. Mm. If I was, I would lose confidence in yourself and your abilities. Yeah, you lose confidence in yourself. You feel bad and uncomfortable all the time and you can't get proper sleep. And um, it's it, it leads to sort of very high rates of depression as well. And, um, you know, it is recoverable from, but yeah. it takes quite a while to recover. You, shouldn't never so need to, I, you should never need to get there, really. Well, that's that's the idea is that we try and get a systems approach. So we're not just strengthening people so they can take more hassle and more toxic stress. What we need is a kind of a complete system overhaul where there's a culture of wellness, where there's efficiency of practice. Um, and um, professional fulfilment as well, and that the system is managed well. And and as we know, and it's not just in Ireland, um, the NHS where I trained and worked for 20 years is under huge pressure now. It's just, uh, it's not just funding, although funding is important. It's about the way the system is being um, configured and managed. And um, uh, so there's a, there's a lot to do. And I think we are, it's good that surveys like the one at the weekend came out because um, that's another kind of grist to the mill, if you like, more evidence that we, that really tinkering with uh, personal resilience is, is not going to cut it. Mm. A systems approach is, is what's required. That, that, that survey, as I, I, as I read it, just as a, sorry to cut across you, there's a small, small delay. That survey, as I read it, as a layperson, uh, is is a flag yeah. to me as to why it is so hard to hold on to good people in the health service. Oh, absolutely! And there was um, there was a, a study done in the states actually last week or the week before, and they were saying kind of okay, what's happening with the exits from medicine and health, and why are people leaving, and you know what when are they going to leave, and has COVID made a difference to this? And um, they found that kind of a quarter of people are actually planning to leave the service. Um, in their countries and they're planning to uh, and a quarter of them again are thinking of leaving in the next six to 12 months. So, I mean, 
that that means, I suppose, the, the counterpoint to that is that 75% are staying, but how long are they going to stay and how long are they going to be able to keep the energy up when there's mm. such an exit? Plus, of, plus, plus, of, plus people who are on the verge of burnout or suffering from burnout one imagines that their clinical decision-making isn't what it should be either, and that's no fault of their own. How does Egeistacht help them, Absolutely. though, Margaret? Well, Egeistacht is not, is not involved in, in um, the stuff that I do with safe meds. So Egeistacht is, is more about relationship and practice. So Egeistacht has a very good... Um, uh, what would you call it, a support system called um, Connecting with the Heart in Frontline Practice. Mm. And um, that that is more about the stepping back reflective time. Yeah. Um, and the safe med stuff that, that UCC Med School are involved with is, is really about kind of trying to build resilience in the system because mm. the evidence is very clearly that happy, well doctors are safer, better practitioners. And they, you know, they listen better to their patients. They are more in tune with what the patient needs. But the the, the actual outcomes from treatment are better. And mm. the journey for the patient is a shorter, better journey. Yeah. So um, one thing I can't yeah. imagine you know, the difficulty during the pandemic, I just can't imagine how hard it must have been. We were all told uh, those of us, even here in media, keeping covering the pandemic day in, day out. We were all told, take an hour, even take 40 minutes, shut everything out and just take that yeah. hour and try to do. Where does a, an You're absolutely not going to get that in there. You're not. Where are you going yeah. to get that You're out? You're not. You're going to do 20 <laughs> minutes, let alone an hour. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to get that. And um, even if you were, if you get a five, ten minute break, you're going to get to the canteen and, you know, the food is gone, you know, yeah. so. It, it, but you're still really on the, the premises whole... as well. You're still in, you're, you're still in that toxic Absolutely. environment. Absolutely. And people not able to get back to their families for days on end. And, you know, it's it has been very hard uh, for uh, frontline staff, nurses and doctors in, in all areas. It's It's been very tricky. The good thing, I suppose, is that it's highlighted this stuff that there, there used to be, uh, I think it was in about 2016 when there was a total review done. Um, a chap called Adam Hill said, you know, we keep talking about this burnout. We keep talking about toxic stress and doctors and nurses not being well. But then we go back to our, our day job. And mm. I think the thing about COVID and about these constant surveys is that um, actually doctors and nurses are beginning to say, look, here's the light. I'm shining it on this. And here's the data. It's it's not made up. It's uh, it's it's. Uh, proper research uh, telling us what the picture, well, I suppose what the ground truth is yeah. um, about what's happening and it is very tricky. At the end of this... Very uh, tricky for patients as well. When this eventually is all over, um, Dr O'Rourke, are we going to be looking at a cohort of medical staff who actually are on the verge of, if not fully suffering from PTSD? We're going to see a huge amount of that, definitely. Um, and the health service is aware of that and taking action to to try and prevent that because prevention is going to be much better than cure. So, um, yes, that, that that is a risk. Um, it's one that will be managed and that the health service is actively managing. I, I, I don't work for the health service, mm. so I, 
I, I kind of I'm I'm not being an apologist or anything, but I do I do think the the desire there is to is to do something and to do it early, and it's been on the agenda. Uh, the dean of medicine at UCC has had this on the agenda for quite some time, just to keep an eye on it and to make sure that we're we're trying to do as much as we can. And that's what the work with the medical students is from day one of med school. We're starting with them. Let's teach you the kind of skills you need to to climb the mountain. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If people are going to are going to take on a task, they need to be fully equipped. But um, I, I think the move towards uh, in, enhancing personal resilience training with systems uh, efficiency of practice and system supports and prevention is is the way to go. And thankfully, we are going slowly, but we are mm. actually heading in the right direction All right. and okay. I mean it, I just have to take this opportunity to thank the all the frontline staff uh, across Ireland and, and uh, uh, globally for for my goodness have they been absolutely amazing what they what they have done what they've given up to to protect people to to show that they really have the patient at heart and um, they're they're just wonderful so I just take this opportunity to to thank them all. I think so say all of us and thank you for your time this morning on the opinion line. Dr. Margaret O'Rourke, who's a clinical psychologist and the clinical director of Egg Ish Doctor, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Some effective methods to relieve stress among frontline workers don't require much investment. Paramedics have no canteen and no management of meal breaks to ensure they're all fed for their demanding work. Imagine what that does to your stress levels. Yep, yep, that's that's one I was aware of quite a while ago, caller. It's some new some pandemic or pandemics, some paramedics uh, quite well, and they told me all about that a long time ago. Caller says, "I'll tell you what will cause a lot of mental stress: the closure of bank branches. We all know, no matter how online you try to be, there are occasions when only a branch can do. We saved these banks, and now they're experimenting with unproven strategies." already being used by the likes of Revolut. We'll end up with everyone doing the same thing and the established banks will not be able to compete with the newcomers that didn't recklessly rack up the debts and need a bailout. And a lot of talk in rural areas over the weekend about bank branches closing. The argument to the bank is, well, no one's using it anymore. So they're sitting there five days a week looking at an empty premises and it's just not feasible to keep them open anymore. That's that the bank's argument, but not too sure it cuts any ice with the people who do on occasions need to use that local branch. 1850 715996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Courts 96 FM. Ah, good evening, Queensland. Hello to Dr. Niall Conroy listening to us in Queensland, uh, commenting on the homework situation in schools, talking to the new INTO president about homework for youngsters. He said, I never understood the need for primary school kids to do homework. It's a long enough day for them. Let them just be kids when they go home, says Dr. Nile in Queensland. We had a good chat on my podcast at the weekend, uh, 20 Minutes With. You'll find it on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find out why Dr. Conroy named his son after a town 
in Sierra Leone. That's on the podcast. It is Mental Health Awareness Week, running until, until Wednesday, the 13th. Um, 7th to the 13th of, of October. And four years ago, Michael, you were in a very, very difficult situation. And if things had gone differently, we might not be having this conversation. Good morning. Morning, PJ. How are you? How are you doing? How are you keeping these days? Good, yeah, very good, thankfully. Yeah, things have, have turned around much, much better, thankfully. Good man. Well, I know it might be somewhat painful to relive it, but to mark the week that it is, you, you want uh-huh. to do that. So so take me back to four years ago and the place you were in. Yeah, um, I was in a really, really dark place. Um, I felt um, useless. I felt uh, everybody would be better off if I wasn't around. Um, I didn't believe in myself. Um, I just, yeah, I just, I just felt I wanted to end it all. Um, I, I remember, and it's actually this month, coincidentally, the end of this month, um, sitting in, in a, my car in a car park in a shopping center and just deciding I couldn't do this anymore. I can't, can't take this anymore. And just, just decided I want to end it all. And luckily <laughs> I changed my mind. What um, very brought luckily. you to that point, Michael? Um, I suppose what tipped me over the edge was financial worries that had been going on um, for years, uh, for a good few years, you know, during the recession. Mm. Um, and um, and it was, it was, I guess it was my coping skills or my lack of coping skills, I suppose, PJ. Um, I, 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 I can kind of go back to why I always worried about money. And that goes back to my childhood. Um, but but I, I would have been very much a worrier uh, about money, um, even when I got married, when I had my first mortgage, uh, when, when we moved house. Uh, I always, always worried about money. Um, now, some of those worries became real during the recession. and We did owe um, a lot of money um, and it got quite serious, but I just didn't cope with it. Um, I, I didn't speak to anybody about it. I bottled it all up. I, I felt maybe because a man, uh, it was my job to look after my family. Mm. And uh, I just didn't speak to anybody. Um, I ignored letters. I ignored legal letters. I ignored bank letters. And yeah, it just got too much. And I felt everybody would be much, much better off if I wasn't around because I was a weak person. I was a bad person. And everybody would be much better off. Mm. So you're sitting in your car and you're thinking about the end. Mm. What, what inspired you to pick up the phone and call? It was your GP, wasn't it? It was my GP. Uh, to be honest, I don't know, um, PJ. It, 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 it wasn't, uh, and I know some people don't like to hear this, it, it wasn't because of my family. It wasn't... I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just looking. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I didn't. I didn't get a moment where I decided all my family wouldn't be better off. I didn't. I actually believe they would have been better off. Um, I, I never know why I, I picked up the phone, but it was the best thing I ever I'm, did. I'm, I'm absolutely certain said it was. Weird. So you've no, you've you've no to this to this day, and I'm sure you've thought about it. You've no idea yeah. why you just took the phone out of the pocket and rang a GP, just something inspired you and you can't remember what that something is or you can't put your finger on what that something was. 
I can't put my finger on it. I really wow. can't. And wow. it's not, it, it, it's not, again, it's, it, it, and it's not nice to say, but it, it's not that I felt guilty or, well, you know, what would they do without me? And mm. I, I, I didn't feel my, the thoughts in my head were wrong. I completely and utterly believed the thoughts in my head were right. Um, but thankfully I picked up the phone. Indeed yeah. you did. And you spent a number of weeks in hospital after that. Yeah, look, I, I did a really good experience um, with the HSE, and I, I know that's not normal. But, but like what, what happened I, after I had, you rang the doctor? What, 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 how, how did the doctor react? Okay, so so when I rang the receptionist, I told her exactly what was going on, and she told me to to come in and and she'd make sure I get seen straight away. Uh, I was in the waiting room maybe for I don't know five minutes. Um, the doctor saw me. She said she wasn't qualified to deal with me. Um, which I thought was very brave of her as well, to be honest. Um, and she, she just said, look, I need to. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. To, to make a phone call, she came back and she said this. Uh, she had been on to the acute mental health unit in the CUH, uh, which is a completely separate building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not what we used to call GF. It's a completely separate right. building. It's up the back now. It's, it's uh, a whole new building. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, look, my brother brought me in. Um, my, or I was seen by a psychiatrist. I'd say within fifteen minutes. Um, then they had a chat with myself and my wife together, um, and uh, it was recommended that I'd, I'd stay in hospital. Um, there wasn't a time limit put on it, but they just recommended that I'd stay in hospital. I had a bed, I would imagine, within a half an hour. Um, wow. Everybody in there 
Uh, yeah, it was incredible. Clearly, Everybody clearly in there has... The people realised that you were at a very, very delicate point and they had to get you in there now. Absolutely, PJ. Absolutely. I was on, I was on suicide watch for the first two nights or two days, two nights. Um, you know, they take your belt off you, they take your, your shoelaces off you. The, um, obviously, you're not allowed your razor. You know, you have to ask for that if you want to go for a shave. Um but then the services in there are just incredible. Mm-hmm. They are absolutely incredible. Um, there are all types of therapy. There was meditation. There was mindfulness. There was baking therapy, music therapy, walking therapy. The psychiatric nurses were always there for you if you needed them to have a chat. Um, and every single person working in there were mm-hmm. probably the kindest people I've ever met. And you were a public patient, were you, Michael? I was public, yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's it, you know it. It just upsets me when I when I hear people's stories that they were sitting in 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 A and D for hours and hours and hours. And you know, I, to be honest, I remember after three or four minutes of sitting in the foyer of this place, uh, and it was empty. There was nobody there. Um, I remember saying to my brother, "Look, I, I made a mistake. L- let's go away. Let's get out of here. This isn't for me." Um, so how people sit in 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 accident and emergency for hours is beyond me. It's, it's, it's cruel. You mentioned that your brother brought you there and you mentioned that you no. had a, a long conversation with your wife but a couple of minutes ago you told me that none of them had any idea of the position no. you were in. So all of this was new to them. How did they react? Look, I suppose people were angry with me. Um... Some people were angry. Obviously, you know, everybody was was upset that I was that sick. But then there was people, you know, questioning what what kind of life had I led. You know, which parts were real? Um, because I had felt like this for years and years. You know, I would I would I would come home from work, and if there was no letters there, then I was happy. Um, I could I could switch off. So it was like I was leading a double life. Um, PJ, um, I was able to work. I was able to function. Um, but I would go home from work some days and and see if there was any post there that, that you know, meant trouble. And I would just rip it up and throw it in the bin. Um, you didn't so even read them? I, I was, no, no. Well, I knew what was in them. I knew what was in them, you know. So, um, you know, and to me, that was normal behavior. That was the best thing to do. Um, you know, our minds are so powerful, PJ. They really oh, yeah. are. I, like, I had, I had no doubt, absolutely no doubt in my mind that that was the best thing to do. Just, just rip it up, throw it away. That's it. You know, you don't. I, I'd no logic, but just, just do that. And come the end of your three weeks in hospital with all these superb people, and they are, and you're right to point it out. Had yeah. you re, had you begin to rethink that situation at the end of the three weeks? Because no matter how well or unwell you were, these issues were not going to go away. So you have to combine those dealing with those with your own health. Yeah, I see. I I suppose like what I had to do, um, PJ, and this is the way I look at it, is I had to retrain my brain and retrain my mind. So I, because I would have spent most of my, my life thinking a particular way, um, I had to retrain that and that was never going to be instant. Mm. Um, So I, you know, I mean, they gave me foundations. I, I, I was put on, and am still on antidepressants, but they're only one part of, you know, me kind of getting through days. 
Um, but they, they gave me um, they gave me a foundation just to to work on. Um, I I also had um, kind of it was biweekly visits first uh, with um, a therapy nurse um, in the local um, health centre. Um, sorry, twice a week. That that went to once a week, and then once a fortnight, and then once a month. Um, and I, I, I'm still in contact with those guys four years later, kind of every kind of six or eight weeks. Um, so th- the care was there, the help was there from the start. And it was just about just retraining my brain and, and you know, making sense of things, giving me much, much better coping skills, um, which really was the crux of it all. You know, everybody has problems. Everybody has, well, most people have, you know, owe money and owe lots of money. Mm. But my coping skills just weren't weren't right. So yeah, they gave me the skills and gave me the tools. They actually paid for me to do a mindfulness course right. um, in St. Finbar's Hospital. That was an eight-week course, which which was brilliant. Completely encouraged me to to do meditation, to do some exercise, to eat properly. Um, they explained to me medication was only one tiny part of it, and I suppose really the hardest part is 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 the work you do yourself. Um, you know, you you can't expect all these people to fix you. Um, they can give you the tools and show you what to do, but you've got to do it yourself. That's the hard part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must have been terribly frightened at times. Um, before I went to hospital, is Even it? Even in hospital. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much. Even even when I came out, I was I was. Um, you know, it took me a while even just to just to just to even get out onto the street. You know, I just I felt everybody was looking at me and mm. you know knew what was going on. Um, and I do remember one day a friend of mine calling, and I even jumped. I was at home on my own, and I I jumped because I hated when the doorbell rang. Yeah. Um, and you know, because I you know I you thought, thought it was oh, more this trouble. Is bad yeah. news. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a lot of time it was, but it was it was one of my friends who came down from Dublin, especially. And he said, "Come on, I'm bringing you for lunch," and I said, "No, you're you're fine, you're grand," but he's very persistent and he he insisted. And you know, he brought me to lunch. We sat down, we had a chat, and it was pr- probably one of the best things I did. Yeah. Uh, during that time, that's, that's, you know, that's just to get real, out and that's, that's a real friend, someone who drives all the way from Dublin just to bring you to lunch. Yeah. That's, well, you know, the same right. guy, we were out for a few drinks uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were just chatting about life. You know, we're of an age where we've kids and, you know, stuff has gone on and work and everything else. And he actually said to me, how are you doing? And I said, yeah, I'm good. No, he said, how are you really doing? And yeah. I said, look, yeah, yeah, things are good. And he said, you're not effing lying to me again, are you? <laughs> I said, no, you're good. You need I'm friends not. like that. You need, everybody needs you a do. friend like that. Everybody needs yeah. a friend. You know, you know what they say, Michael, before I finish it? They say that yeah. a, a friend will tell you what you want to hear. A great friend yeah. will tell you what you need to hear. And, and that's well, that's really it, PJ. And we shouldn't be afraid to ask people how are they really feeling. Yeah. You know, and we shouldn't pussyfoot around the language of mental health and suicide and killing yourself and taking your own life and are you having bad thoughts and you know we shouldn't put I would much prefer to insult somebody by asking them that question than to be sitting in a funeral home and saying I should have asked him was he okay well that pretty much says it you're also encouraging people in the week that's in it finally Michael yeah. to do what you do or did 
pick up the phone yeah. and ask for help? Ask anybody. It doesn't have to be a GP. Uh, ring a friend. You know, if you're on social media, send somebody a message, send somebody a text. Nothing is worth the alternative. There's no coming back from the alternative. There's no coming back from killing yourself. And no matter how things, see how bad things seem, they probably are not as bad. Our minds have just terrible ways of, of, of making us believe things are worse than they are. Mm. Um, and just ring somebody. It can't be any worse than the alternative. A dear friend of mine who's no longer with us, a man called John McCarthy, oh. or Mad, oh, yeah. Mad John as we knew him with great affection. I remember him. John always said, it's a permanent solution to a temporary oh. problem. Well, that's it. That's exactly it. It's just, no, but it's, it's really hard to explain to somebody who hasn't felt that way, PJ, it really is. Of course. That makes sense to you and I now. But when you're, it's, I often say to people, it's like trying to talk to somebody who's very drunk. Mm. It's, it's really hard to understand that what's in somebody's head when in, they're in that situation is very real. Yes. They don't, it's, they, they can't see the way out. Their no, mind won't let no. them see it. But that's it, PJ. And I, I think, to be honest, we need to be talking about this from a really young age. We need to, on both sides, we need to be saying to people, if you're feeling bad, if you're feeling like, you know, hurting yourself, if you are hurting yourself, talk to your friend, talk to somebody. But on the flip side, we need to be saying, if your friend comes to you and says, they feel like hurting themselves. They feel like killing themselves. They're very down. You need to speak to an adult. You need to speak to a teacher or a parent, your parent or the, your friend's parent. But I think we need to teach kids from a really, really young age about this. Okay. All right. Listen, Michael, I could talk to you all day because your story is a remarkable one. Whatever made you pick up that phone four years ago, you probably may, may never know. But it's the reason that you're here today talking to me and thank you very much indeed. And I wish you continued good health. That's uh, Michael Cronin, 1850-715-996. If you need help, if you need it now, you can call Pieta, uh, 1-800-247-247, 1-800-247-247. You can call the Samaritans. Their 24-hour helpline is 116-123, 116-123. Call your GP or just talk to a friend and do it now. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. The Right Here Right Now Festival returns on November 12th to 14th to celebrate some of the country's finest music taking place at Cork Opera House in Collins. Now in its fourth Right Here, Right Now is a celebration of the vibrant and eclectic music scene in both Cork and Ireland with tickets on sale now from Cork Opera House box office. Access all areas.
areas. Mary Green, Fiona Kennedy and Anna Mitchell, Steve Cooney and Dermot Byrne are all set to perform as part of the upcoming Cork Folk Festival at the Triscoll this October. Further details can be found at CorkFolkFestival.com Access All Areas Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. There was a time when budgets were unknown until day when the minister, or as it is these days, ministers, uh, stand up and tell us what they're going to do with our money for the next 12 months. By this time tomorrow, we'll know it all. And by lunchtime or early afternoon, it will all have been confirmed when Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath stand up and give their different speeches. But Sinn Féin, as they've always done, Sinn Féin has published its own budget, which it says is completely costed, uh, meaning that it could be done. And they have checked with the experts in the Department of Finance and others to say, yes, you could actually do all of these things. One of the things they want to do, for example, is borrow more money, 1.5 billion more than the government would intend to spend over the next year or so. They also want to do things like have... uh, a solidarity tax on earnings over 140,000. Let's get some more detail from uh, Cork South Central TD, Donoghue Donoghue, good morning to you. Good, good morning, PJ. How are you? This is very well, thank you. This is published and costed and the experts have been over it and they say, yes, it could be done. Now, borrowing 1.5 billion more than the government intends, like, do we really need to go into more debt? Well, look, I mean, I suppose the first thing is our budget needs to be focused on what we think this budget needs to be focused on is delivering the biggest issue in our society. And for us, that's in relation to housing, that's in relation to health, and it's also in relation to childcare, which is a particular issue yeah. uh, in this city. So, like, I mean, it's about putting workers and families first. It's about targeting resources where they're needed most now. In terms of borrowing, we aren't proposing to borrow for current expenditure. That's day-to-day expenditure, your wages, your, your costs that arise every year. It's about bricks and mortar. It's about a capital infrastructure. And it would be the case that any, I think anyone with, uh, who, you know, in any developed economy, any sensible government would always adopt the attitude that you don't borrow uh, excessively for current expenditure. But it is wise when it is now, like borrowing is is at negative interest rates, is, is the best time. There has mm. scarcely been a better time in the history of the state to borrow to build infrastructure. Mm. And we already we do, need... regardless of what you're spending it on and regardless of what you're borrowing it for, we already have massive debts. We have significant debts, yeah, but like I mean, I suppose the other thing that we made sure, and it's not true of all the other opposition parties, uh, by the way, is to make sure that we meet our deficit targets. Uh, so we will ensure that we will be on track to meet our deficit targets and we're closing the deficit significantly right. according to our proposals. But we need capital investment. Like, I mean, look, capital investment is a phrase that probably doesn't mean a lot to an awful lot of people. But what does that mean? That means hospital beds. That means 
provides additional modular uh, community beds for this winter, which is going to be, and I'd like to talk about this a bit, PJ, we could be in for a very severe winter if we don't invest now in emergency modular uh, community step-down beds to take the pressure off our knees. It means affordable housing. It means social housing. It means in childcare, investing in infrastructure to ensure that there's more places provided uh, so that the cost comes down. So, yes, we're borrowing. We're, we're borrowing to build. And that's not that's not reckless. That's not careless. That's a wise investment, PJ. And I mm. think anyone involved in economics would be of the same view that money invest in capital infrastructure. We've done very badly in that way mm. in, in this state. Oh, I know. Uh, I, historically. I, I make an absolutely valid point about, you know, it's very cheap to borrow at the moment and we do need to build schools and hospitals and, all that, and houses and all that kind of thing. But I guess people would look at it as like, Jesus, more debt? Haven't well, we enough? Say, look, I mean, I come back to the point that you know, and look, I mean, I think, you know, it has to be remembered as well, a lot of those debts were not accumulated by spending on vital public infrastructure. Yeah. They weren't accumulated, uh, I suppose, primarily on roads or housing or anything like that. It was bailing out the banks who uh, yeah. who caused us so much hardship. But the fact is, unlike other opposition parties, we are sticking to the deficit targets. We are going to make sure that in our proposals that we are paying our debts at the rates that they need to be paid and in a secure and sustainable way. Uh, that, probably, that is probably moves me on to the tax end of it. And that's the solidarity tax of 3% over 140,000. What's that about? Who's that for? Who's that aimed at? Well, like I mean, as you say, it's on those above 140,000. And I suppose we call it solidarity tax because we do believe that there are people in society who are in a position uh, to contribute a bit more. And when you look at the, the gaps in our public services, when you look at the great need that is there, like it is still the case. We uh, had our health spokesperson, David Colnan, down last Monday and he visited a number of groups. One of them was Penny Dinners. And we're still dealing with... Like this housing crisis, I don't know, PJ, how when you believe it started, but I think we're dealing with this for six or seven years at this stage. And it's still a crisis. Mm. And there's still people out there who are 9, 10, 11 years on the list. There are still people uh, stuck in homelessness. There are still people falling into homelessness. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to, like the policies that have been undertaken by governments in recent years have not been adequate. And from what we, we are reading, the amount of social and affordable housing that's going to be built, welcome and all as what they're going to deliver is going to be. Uh, first, they didn't meet the targets that they set last year, but even the targets so, that they seem to be setting... High, higher year, targets for those who it's can afford it. Pardon? Higher taxes for those who can afford to pay more. Yeah, well, like, I mean, I think that there is, uh, there are people who are in a position to contribute a little bit more on that portion of their income above 140,000. Not on all of their income, but on that mm. portion of their income above 140,000, are they in a position to contribute a little bit more to help us get out of the crisis that we're in, in terms of housing and health? Yes, absolutely. And in return, they would benefit from the things that all the rest of society would, would benefit from, from lower class sizes, from investment in our infrastructure, uh, investment in third level education, uh, reducing the cost of childcare. So uh, there is a quid pro quo mm. and those who would be asked to contribute a bit more would benefit as well. Well, we are very short, for example, of hospital consultants who are very, very well paid people. But can we really attract them from overseas if they know they're going to get pinched by the tax system? 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, this is an area we've actually done a lot of work on. Uh, our health spokesperson, David Colnan, he was at the Irish Hospitals Consultants Association, AGM, and addressed it there on, I think it was, it might have been Thursday or Friday. Uh, it was over the weekend in any event. Uh, and I think there's a lot of common cause there. And you talk to the Hospital Consultants Association. Yes, obviously, salary is an issue and there are negotiations in relation to that. Uh, and, you know, that has to be worked out. And I mean, we do agree with them that the issues around pay quality among consultancy to be resolved. But it's not just about pay. It's about security. Mm -hmm. It's about quality of, uh, I suppose, the, the working conditions that they're in. Yeah. So, you know, we talk to consultants and they say to us is, look, if we are able to uh, ensure that our that our hours are kept sensible and that we have the right equipment, which, you know, like, I mean, in terms of the, I suppose, some of the equipment that they have, uh, that is a big issue that, uh, as well. Like, you yeah. know, so working, if we can resolve some of those issues, we can retain. But the other thing is this, in terms of negotiating a new contract, like, I mean, if we can take them on as direct public servants and that they'd be paid a, a wage and similarly with GPs in relation to that there is a security in relation to that there are working conditions in relation to that so look I mean and we, we met the head of the CUH recently and we discussed this we believe and I think a lot of people in healthcare believe that yes you pay consultants well you have to pay them well uh, but it is possible to deliver uh, the mm -hmm. consultants that we need and to recruit the consultants that we need uh, on a sensible and balanced kind of a wage Lastly, I spoke to someone at the weekend, Dulce, who said that they were considering voting for Sinn Féin for the first time in their life. And the issue that stood out, and it's quite a young person, the issue stood out was the, 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 the state pension. Are you, is it still policy to keep that at 65? Absolutely, PJ, yeah. And I suppose Cost what we're fortune, about, PJ... Though, no, I don't think it necessarily will. There's a number of things that we do have to do. Um, but, I mean, we've already provided in our budget for to ensure that that can be kept at 65. Uh, and it is it is possible to do that. There's no question about that. What this is about is choice, PJ. Uh, there, it is the case that people are living longer. No doubt about that. That's a good thing. And we shouldn't always talk about these things as, as challenges and negatives. It's a good thing that people are living longer. It's a good thing that older people are healthier than they were a generation ago. But the fact is, when you have this blunt instrument of increasing the pension age, who is going to have to work longer? It is those who can least who are least able to work longer are mm. going to be those who can least afford to retire at that age. So if you are a mason, if you are a carer, if you are a floor layer, if you are in a factory, if you are doing hard physical work or if you're on your feet all day, you're very likely to be on the kind of incomes that won't allow you mm. to retire on 65, unlike those who might be in, uh, I suppose, comfortable uh you know, indoors, warm, non-physical jobs. So what we need to do is there needs to be a choice. If people want to keep working longer, then they should be uh, absolutely entitled to. And we support that. And we want to change the, uh, the I suppose, the laws that exist in relation to that. But mm. people should not be forced to retire, should not be forced to keep working to 66, 67 when they're physically unable to do so. Okay, listen, the budget will be announced tomorrow by the two ministers, but I wanted to catch up with Sinn Féin about their alternative. Donica O'Leary, thank you very much. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The 
lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Big response as always to Michael Ted. Well done, Michael, for your bravery speaking publicly about something so deeply personal with one objective to help others. You speak in such an articulate, comprehensive manner and you're inspirational for doing that. He most certainly is. Maybe you get that longer comment that we had on the GAA row up the country. Maybe print it off for me, Fiona, it might be better. Because if I open it there, I'll lose it off the screen. Thanks. 1850-715-996. couple of things to do. We will check in with Nadim shortly. Uh, he did put up a video on social media recently. If I don't hear anything from the government of Ireland by Friday, I will begin a hunger strike next Thursday at Irish Parliament in Dublin. I have no choice because I can't return to my death. I am doing this to the asylum seekers, unfair treatment and thorough provisions. I'll talk to Nadim about that shortly. But first of all, I want to pop out to MTU, uh, formerly known as CIT, to speak with Lisa about the Code Red. Uh, what is it? It's a campaign or or what is it, Lisa? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good. Um, Thanks so much for, for having us on to chat about Code Red. It's a, it's a period dignity project, actually, is what it is. Um, so what we're doing is we're providing free sanitary pads and tampons at 60 locations around the campus. Um, and then there's also some reusable uh, period underwear and moon cups available from the students' union offices and packs for people to take home at the weekends as well, sponsored by Lidl. So not only are we providing these free products, but we're also trying to tackle taboo and stigma by sharing information and events and, you know, debunking the misinformation that's out there about periods. What kind of Um, misinformation? Well, I suppose that you can't go swimming, perhaps, when you have your period, or that you shouldn't exercise, or that you can't get pregnant when you have your period. Like, all of those things aren't entirely true. Um, So it's, it's about, I suppose, sharing the truth and also trying to reduce embarrassment around periods because there's absolutely no need for people to be, you know, shoving um, a pad up their sleeve or into their pocket when, when they're running into the bathroom because that's what happens. It's kind of like you're hiding it from the world that you actually are just a normal human. Mm. This is going to sound like a really silly man's question. But Go on. Do, does every woman not carry an emergency pad or tampon in their handbag just in case? Sure. So you'd, you'd think that would be the case. And you'd think that, yes, you might have um, a spare one floating around the bottom of your handbag. But actually, we know that national data regarding consistent poverty rates suggests that 53,000 to 85,000 women and girls may be at risk of period poverty, which mm. means that you don't have the financial, the finances basically to buy the products that you need. And we also know that one in two teenagers in Ireland have, at one point or another, not been able to have access to the products that they need. Like, when you put that into, it seems like a massive number, but when you put it into the college perspective, where you might have 50 euros in your pocket for the week, and out of that has to come your food, your um, maybe supplies for class, if you needed, say, lab coats or um, notebooks or pens or whatever, and... Um, 
and wh- whatever else you need during the week. And then you get to Friday and you have you don't have any products with you. You get a period. They don't always come at the same time. Um, you, you get a period and your fiver in your pocket might be the difference between whether you can go to the shop and buy some supplies mm. or whether you can get the bus home. And actually, PJ, like it's a stressor that's not needed when you're in college. Like the whole point mm. of coming is to better yourself so that you can get a better job and, you know, get your degree and, and all the rest. Mm. And like really worrying about where your next pad and tampon is going to come from is yeah. just something like it's as it's as necessary as toilet paper and bathroom soap. So why isn't it provided? So we're doing something about it and we're delighted okay. to be able to offer it to our students. The products that you are, it's just a query the products that you are giving out uh, are they particular brand leader or what are they because you know people can be particular about the kind of product they want to use and the brand they want to use yeah absolutely so we have in the bathroom locations we have products from a company called we are riley they're a west cork company and they're entirely sustainable um pads and tampons of different absorbencies and then in the students union offices then we have the, the reusable underwear and the, the moon cups and the pack sponsored by Lidl as well. So there, is, there isn't a vast choice, but the products that we have on offer, we're really confident that they're really nice um, and that they will, I suppose, just take a stress, an unnecessary stress away from a student's day. Mm. I, I, the, 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 you have a, there's a, an, an ad here in front of me and clearly someone okay. in the cubicle has been caught short. How how yes. how frequently does that happen, Lisa? Given that I've never experienced this myself, obviously. Um, how, how, more how often than you'd imagine. Really? Yeah, yeah, more often than you'd imagine. Yeah, so like I myself have experienced it loads. The more, like I've never spoken about periods as much since we've started this Code Red project here in MTU. Mm. And obviously, you know, when you're chatting to your friends and your colleagues and your peers about whatever is going on in your life. So for me, it was this Code Red thing. They were like, oh, gosh, yeah, definitely. Like, do you remember in school being cut short? Or do you remember, um, you know, being at work and not having access to the products? Or being in a bathroom where there's a dispenser that you have to, you know, pop a coin into and the, the machine won't take your money? Um, or, you know, being in a bathroom that there isn't any dispenser in and having to make a makeshift um, pad out of toilet paper. Like, it's so normal, PJ. I imagine mm. any woman that you speak to will have been caught short at one or once in her life minimum, if not mm. way more than that. I was surprised to learn that actually over the last number of years, how, how common it actually is. You know? Yeah, because I suppose it happens to us every month um, for, for a huge chunk of our lives, actually. Mm. Um, so I suppose in terms of college perspective, the average person spends about 120 euros a year between um, pads uh, or sorry, pads or tampons, whatever okay. their, their product is and painkillers. So that doesn't include like doctor's visits. If you like many people are on contraception to lighten their period. And um, so it doesn't include the cost of that. Like it's 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 actually a massive expense that isn't incurred by you know, the males in, in the population yeah, or yeah. Pe- people who don't menstruate. Because actually, so we're really conscious that we have them in our female bathrooms, but also our gender neutral bathrooms as well, because, you know, there are trans people and intersex. It's not just the traditional idea of a woman um, or a female. It's we're actually being as inclusive as we possibly can here because, you know, it can affect far more than you would think. OK, well, good luck with it, Lisa. Thank you. We we have a um, a series of events next week where we're also, you know, talking about 
periods in well-being and contraception periods and periods in sports and all that sort of thing. So we're hoping that, sorry, this week, actually, it starts tomorrow. Um, so we're hoping that we'll be able to, to spread the word about Code Red on campus as well. And you know, there was a time, and it's not a hundred years ago, in fact, it's barely 10 years ago, when you wouldn't have talked this openly about periods on the radio ever. It just wouldn't have been talked about. So that's a change. Yeah, it's it's very different, I suppose. Uh, even in terms of amongst my friend group, we have never spoken as much as we've had in in recent months. Um, but yeah, we are we're delighted. And actually, once you begin talking about it, you realise how normal it is and how silly it was to be embarrassed. Indeed. All right. Listen. Good. Good luck with it. That's uh, Lisa Moran at MTU eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Cork's 96FM. Now, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Nadim here on the programme and the poor devil was very distressed and very upset when he was on with me. He's staying in direct provision at Kinsale Road and he dreads... Uh, the prospect of being sent back to India, where he comes from. Uh, He is trying to get reassurance that he can stay. Uh, So far, that has not been forthcoming. He released a video on social media uh, the other day. If I don't hear anything from the government of Ireland by Friday, I will begin a hunger strike next Thursday at Irish Parliament in Dublin. I have no choice because I can't return to my death. I am doing this to the asylum seekers, unfair treatment and thorough provisions. Now, Nadim, how are you today? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Very well. How are you today? That's fine. You've decided to to go to Dublin on Thursday? Yes, we are going on 14th October to the Irish Parliament mm-hmm. for my beginning, starting of my hunger strike. Yeah. I'm just begging to the Minister Roderick O'Godman to help me and the Minister of Justice to help me. I'm begging. Mm. Because we were in contact, as you know, with the Taoiseach's office and the Taoiseach himself phoned me and the first thing that he said to me was to pass on to you that you have nothing to worry about for the moment. No one's going to come and take you. But you still want something concrete sorted out for you. Is that right? Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because, you know, I from the day that happens, I can't sleep. I, again, again, I'm saying my mental health is not well. Mm. You can understand my mental health is not well, sir. Yes, yes. Now, we know that you had your first application was turned down and you have a right to appeal and you've taken some legal advice about an appeal. Is that correct? Yes, I already appealed, have given, but there is no result. Because the first, when he have given the appeal, that was rejected. That's, then the second one, when I have given, they have given that result in three weeks, sir. Nice. So why they are not giving this result in three weeks? Right. I understand. I understand. You know what I want to tell you? Because now I have already appealed. I already there. You can check the dates also. Okay. Right. So, 
your your appeal has been turned down is that what you're telling me no 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 when my appeal was turned down mm. the result they have given me the results in 3 weeks 3 weeks okay okay and i have given and already applied for leave to remain that is called review yes and there is already finished 3 weeks there is no result why i see oh yeah well maybe it just you take may, but once you've made that application no, yeah. nothing will happen to you until that decision is made you do understand that what sir Once you have made that application our understanding is that nothing will happen to you while that application is being considered. Yes. Yeah. Does that why give you any the, comfort? Why why they are not giving me result of this one also? Yes, yes. Yes, you're looking Why the, the procedure are same, the laws are same, everything is all same, then why they are not giving me this result? Because now everyone I'm begging and begging and begging and again because i can't sleep my mental condition is not good sir sure. my mental condition is not good this time sure. they can give the results but they are not giving sure i'm just i'm just pleading and now after the pleading i am begging I now i came to begging i am begging to minister of justice i am begging to the teacher i am begging to the rodrick o gorman please help me Yeah. I thanks to all the TDs who helped me. It's time to government to help me with a kind heart, with a open heart. Yeah. Because in my any statements, in my any things, I any any condition, I didn't said anything. I'm I just pleading, pleading, pleading. But now, in front of radio, I'm saying I'm now begging. Okay, Nadim, you were contact. Are you were put in contact with NASC? And, and 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 they are advising you what have they said to you they are, they didn't said me anything they just one people call me and said me that the representative of a lawyers will see the case but this is all wrong thing the procedure of international protection when i have taken the asylum seeking that is different that is not like this hmm it is like this when i have already applied for the ipo first interview it was rejected then i applied for the another the result was in 3 weeks and i already applied for the review so there is no one can do anything now that is only for the decision yes yeah decision that have to come so there is no law there is no lawyers needed there is nothing about the solicitors yes yes i understand you know nask is telling me to i can assist you for the lawyers and solicitors it is there is no choice of any lawyers can do anything because i am in the system till now i have already applied for the review they can just give me the result you know yes yes and this is a basically and my question is in in 3 weeks i got the results of my second to be refused so why they are not giving me results right so so you you just want to know the result yes, you just want to know the result yes i want to know the results yes and and do you have anybody that you can contact any contact person to get you those results or how do they how did they how did they arrive the first time 
nothing they i already applied and they given me a post by post the letter by post okay by okay. post they can post see i am begging sir i want to tell you only one thing i i know this that irish people and ireland government is very good and very kind hearted mm-hmm. it's very kind hearted i'm telling you these things openly but i'm not understanding but i'm not understanding but after my so much pleading so much begging in front now see i am in online and live am i right yes so i am pleading and now i am begging sir begging at least they can give me the result there is nothing i have done anything wrong i have not telling anyone to go beyond the law no yes yes our, our understanding from the political people who have you've contacted is that the ipo process is independent and and they can't influence it they have no influence with it so you just have to wait that's that's what they tell us sir there you are right in your place but in their places that but in that place if you will say like that so there is the ministerial power you know minister can ask to the ipo minister can give me at least something yes. because the minister have a power of uh, justice minister can grant you the leave to stay that is correct minister can grant yes. you the leave to stay yes it, it is under the law it is under the law yes yes that's true so that so that's i'm asking so so the why, only the only why, thing about going to the only thing about going up and starting a hunger strike nadim yes. you say your mental health is, is is suffering and god one can understand why but your physical health will suffer as well if you go on hunger strike man yes sir so what what there is nothing i can understand sir there is nothing because see everybody knows that minister of justice have a power have a power to give leave to remain yes. there is no procedure on that i am i am again and again i am telling i am in till process i don't have deportation orders yes so i am talking the law i am yes. not talking to anyone or any political leaders to do something to favor me something that is not correct or right yes am i right sir yes you're looking for what you're looking for what can be granted you're not looking for something that cannot be done yes and now you are telling that ipo has said i am not under the ipo now i am not under the ipo i am totally i am just begging and just begging and pleading to minister of justice and he have a power to give me a leave to remain that anybody can know you can see the constitution laws also sure so so who will go with you on thursday then if you are going up i am going 2:00 on thursday there are too many people who are coming asylum seekers who are joining to me too many people who are joining to me to support to me to right. stay in ireland yes and you 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 hope to have quite a group with you when you go up on thursday yes 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 okay well could we could we maybe speak to you when when you have begun if 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 you do go up could we maybe speak to you yes no problem okay all right N- nadim i i really do hope that something comes up for you between now and thursday and that you don't have to go all yes, the way up, do you know i have to because sir see at least see i am begging i am begging from the first i am begging from the newspaper i am begging from everywhere i have given emails i have given everything but till now not a one letter 
only just a letter have issued from any ministry. Okay. So what is this, sir? Okay. You you tell me what is this? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea, Nadim. All I know is that we're t- we're we we attempted to give you a voice, and and you use it very strongly, and we're following your story with with, with considerable interest, and we'll continue to do so. Because I will go there. I know anything can happen to me. I can die also. I know these things because my I'm, I, my mentality is not very good, and in physically also I'm not very fat or anything. I'm very slim. Because I'm not eating. Mm-hmm. Because about this. So, anything happens that God knows. But okay. okay. Well, you know what, Nadine? We will catch up again later in the week. And we'll see what happens with, with, with your uh, proposal to go to Dublin and start a hunger strike outside government buildings. But for now, we just wanted to catch up with you and check that you're, that you're okay. And that's Nadim, and indeed we had contact from was it Dave in Switzerland who was uh, worried about him. Yes, indeed, that's that's the latest from Nadim. He's still in a very he's not as distressed as he was the last day, but still in a very worrisome situation. And intends, if he doesn't get any result uh, before Thursday, to begin a hunger strike outside government buildings. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. I've got to get to this woman on time because she stepped out of a conference to be with us. Dr. Tara Shine, good morning. Morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good. And Beautiful con- day. It's a lovely day. And congratulations. We were talking about you on Friday. You'd been the overall businesswoman of the year locally in the Cork Awards. You only went and did it nationally, Cara. The look on your face when they announced it, though, it was gas. <laughs> oh, look, it was just such a surprise. And uh, it's just so lovely. It's so lovely to have your work validated, um, you know, by your peers when you're up against such other great finalists. And to have that, uh, you know, to go on and do it at the, at the All-Ireland level as well, it was, uh, yeah, really great. When you and I spoke on uh, International Women's Day back in March, you, you talked to me about your, your, your passion for, for doing what you do and, and STEM for, and science, for, particularly for getting young women and young girls into, into science. This is a, a huge endorsement of what you do, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so I think, you know, science is at the heart of what we do in our business, Change by Degrees. It's all around trying to demystify and decode things like climate science and sustainability science and make that accessible to everybody. Um, and that that is something I'm madly passionate about because I think until we grow the conversation on what it means to be doing something about climate change or living a sustainable life or putting it into your business, until we do that, we're not going to get the change we need. So it's like top priority as far as I'm concerned. All right. Well, congratulations. I know you've popped out of, of an event to be with us. Uh, congratulations on being My pleasure. named as the uh, STEM Businesswoman of the Year, uh, Network Ireland Businesswoman of the Year. Dr. Tara Shine uh, lives in Kinsale, originally from County Kilkenny but very much a Cork woman these days. Thank you, Tara. Quick reminder to you, join Trevor Welch for Premier League Live on Saturdays from midday at 96am.ie, powered by TalkSport. Pre-match analysis, live commentary, 
exclusive interviews and post-match breakdowns with Trevor and the team. The Premier League Live online with Now. Stream live Premier League action with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. Your sport on your terms. Stream only the games that matter to you most with Now. And listen Saturday at 96fm.ie or on the Cork's 96fm app. We have been following the story of Owen Akura right through the summer into the autumn and we're going to stay with it until whatever happens, happens. At this stage, there's a kind of a soft deferral of the closure in that it was supposed to close doors shut after the Jazz weekend, end of October. That's not now going to happen. HSE's recent statement indicated that they're working with individual families. So I thought we'd catch up again with what has been going on at Onakura in the recent weeks. And I've been speaking to Councillor Liam Quaid. Councillor Liam Quaid, good to speak with you again. You were the one who brought this to our attention during the summer and we've stayed with it since. Now, what is the situation with residents at Onakura as we speak, Liam? So, uh, PJ, uh, the Cork East TDs had a meeting with Minister Mary Butler last Thursday and they were informed um, that arrangements for alternative accommodation are, are being made with 11 of the 19 residents. Um, and I suppose that, in a way, puts the, the families of residents who may want to hold out and, and really question the closure in a very difficult position because what they're going to see over the coming weeks is essentially the, the service being dismantled slowly around it, around them. You know, the residents will be moving on mm. and presumably some staff will be moving too. Um, so I, I guess the, the closure, despite the fact that the, the closure date is, is being delayed, the closure process is continuing apace from what I've heard of that meeting. Um, so, uh, you know, there, apparently at the meeting there was, there was a lot of mention of the will and preference of the residents, that it was their will and preference to take up alternative uh, placements that were offered to them. Um, and that may well be the case. Hmm. Um, I don't know otherwise, but I think it's 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 important to, to note that will and preference is only meaningful if there is a choice of placement. And we do know that residents are being told that Onakura has to close. And we saw from the Oireachtas meeting there are still a lot of question marks around um, around that statement. Hmm. I think it's also only meaningful if it is a fully informed decision. And there's plenty of information that was sought prior to the Oireachtas meeting, um, you know, about costings and design drawings that were done for renovation only last year mm. and the, the conditions of alternative premises um, that has not yet been provided. The, the consistent line of the HSE seems to be there is no alternative to this. There is no other way to do this. And I think you and others don't accept that. Well, I, I'll put it to you this way. If... If you had a CAM service located in a certain premises and the HSE's maintenance department discovers that there were issues in the building and the building was beyond repair, would people accept that that service is just going to be removed and there's no clear service plan in place? Obviously, we'd all accept that if the building was, um, you know, in, in difficulty, that it, it would need work. But removing a building and removing a service are two very different things. Mm. And I, I just want to kind of um, cast this into relief a little bit, just by contrasting East Cork at the moment with North Cork. So 
North, the North Cork Adult Mental Health Catchment Area, it's made up of three teams. There's one in Kenturk, one in Mallow and one in Fermoy. And each of those teams has three community houses for people who would have the same level of difficulty as the Onakura residents. Mm-hmm. Each house has 14 beds. Uh, that, so that's 42 in total across North Cork. So all those beds are single en suite and it's, they're all 24-hour staffed houses. The overall catchment area of North Cork is very similar population size as East Cork. It's somewhere between 90 and 100,000. Now, the Onacora Centre has been the only community residence for Middleton Yall and Cove Linville teams um, for many years. Right. If you add up all the, all the rooms as single rooms, there's 20 there. So that's half of what North Cork has. Now, this is before the closure decision. Mm-hmm. So now what has been proposed is that East Cork will have its only community residence for people with the highest level of need removed and does no clear service plan. Not just, I suppose, and, and the focus so far has been very much about the current residents and that's, that's absolutely um, right that that's the case. But what about all the other people across East Cork with similar levels of need who may be struggling at home with ageing parents, who may be in institutional settings, who require that level of community rehabilitation? And one question I would have is, since February, um, there has been no people admitted to Onakura for placement. That was the last time a, a resident moved in there. So where, since February, have mm-hmm. people who have needed those placements in, in East Cork um, been, been referred? So are they, are, that's sorry. a very stark contrast. Like you say, North Cork, and I, I use the term here now just purely for ease of use. North Cork has 42 mm-hmm. Onakura-type beds yep. across three centres yep. and East Cork is about to lose its only such centre mm-hmm. Now I understand that the meeting with TDs the other day there was, there was uh, talk of a house being located somewhere in Middleton to accommodate a fraction of the 20 that are in Onakura or the 19 um, there was no information on where exactly in Middleton, uh, whether it would be 24-hour staffed or, or how long it would take to bring it up to HC standards. Now, I would argue there's a very big difference between being in a town centre location, even with 19 people, than there is in a small house in an estate, which is maybe, a, a, you know, not walking distance mm. for, for these residents outside town, with a smaller number. Um but even if you were to say, you know, this is ideally located in Middleton, it's still a fraction of 20. Yeah. Um, and it's a similar population size to North Cork, which has 42. And, you know, those those um, rooms in North Cork, they're not semi-vacant. They're in demand, mm-hmm. and a, as they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is the broader service impact that I really, uh, you know, want to kind of impress upon my TD colleagues in particular. Yeah. And I wrote to local TDs and councillors in East Cork and in the Cove, kind of covering the Cove Glenville area last night, suggesting that we refer this to the health committee of, of the Dáil, mm-hmm. because we've had two mental health committee meetings and the last meeting left us with so many questions and they still haven't been followed up. Uh-huh. So there's another protest, I believe, happening in the coming days as well, Liam. That's right. Um, so next Saturday, October the 16th, there is going to be a gathering in Middleton Main Street at, outside the courthouse. Um, and we're, there's going to be some, some speeches there that's at half one um, next Saturday. And then we're going to go on a march through town. And, you know, it's, I suppose, a, a, for a show of kind of solidarity um, with 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 residents and families and also 
with I suppose the broader um, cohort of people across East Cork who will need those placements into the future. So we were really we're really hoping for a large turnout to that. We were really bowled over by how many people came out for the public meeting in uh, the Middleton Park Hotel on September 20th, mm-hmm. and that was a Monday evening. Um, so hopefully the weather will be good. Indeed, Liam. Thank you very much as always. No problem. See you, AJ. That's Councillor Liam Quaid. That's a stark comparison that North Cork has 43, if you like, Owenacurra-style beds, whereas East Cork is about to lose its only 20 beds that it has in that one place in Owenacurra. That's just one thing to be taken into consideration. But how are the residents faring out? Where are they in all of this? As the saga continues, and we've spoken to Mary, who who is a relative of a resident, a number of times now. How are they feeling, Mary? Good morning. Uh, good morning, PJ. Um, I think it, it's safe to say everybody's very distressed in um, Onakura, both the residents and I think the staff are very um, distressed about what is what is happening um, uh, with with the with the proposed closure. Have a number of people been given an alternative that they're happy with at this stage? Um, well, I suppose everything is done on an individual basis, and I can only really speak for our our own situation. And yes. that is that what was being offered is is institutional type of um, accommodation, and that's devastating. To be honest with you. Um, my sister came from um, that type of situation over 25 years ago and the idea that she would be, you know, faced with that prospect as an alternative um, to Onakura is, is really a backward step. It it is so um, dehumanizing um, after all these years to be removed to such a, I suppose, such a type of service really um, that is so, completely different to what she um, has at the moment. In 25 years, she has every right to call Onakura her home. Yeah, and and PJ, there are people in Onakura who are are there longer. There are people there who are up to 33 years there. And um, they they are, um, um, I suppose, if if Anna's embedded in in Onakura, they are even more so. And the idea that they should be um, removed and sent maybe to a nursing home or sent to some other facility just seems so cruel. I, I think to expect somebody at this hour of their life to turn around, leave what they know, leave who they know, leave a place they know, and somehow um, think that's good enough for um, uh, this um, group of people with the highest level of need within the services. It's just shameful. Mm-hmm. And has she been told or have you been told when she might have to move or will she have to move? Um, no, we haven't. We're, we're due to have another meeting. Um, what we've what we've been, I suppose what has been floated is that the original date of the 31st of October is being pushed out now. That That's the only thing that we're, we know. Yeah. Um, what, what, what date is being proposed is anybody's guess really right. we just don't have any sense of that so the, this kind of soft deferral as I've been referring to it and that the, H, the, the yeah. doors will not close on the 31st like like we thought they would but still that doesn't leave any answers for, for you and others 
No, not at all. And I, I, I think what what it, what it leave, leaves actually is more anxiety and more worry. And um, I, I think the the level of anxiety, if anything, over the last few weeks has increased because um, I, I, I I think people are anxious. They're an anxious group anyway. So all of this um, um, uncertainty is just really a huge stress on them, and it's it's just so. Um, I, I, I think it's so disrespectful and to the to the group that they are. May I ask, how is your sister, Mary? How is she doing? To be honest, PJ, she's 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 finding it really difficult. Um, like some days, she is really um, upset about it and looking to know, you know, um, will it get sorted out? Are they going to be kicked out? Um, are they are they um, are they ever going to find a place together? I, I mean, the idea of breaking up the you know the the um, the well. residents. Uh, that's it. That's it. And like she's worried about other people. Will they be sorted out? Are the older people of their group going to be all right? Like these are people who've lived together for twenty five years, thirty years, thirty three years. It, it's just. Really it's like shocking walking into a family think. home and saying, right, you're going to live in there, you're going to live in there, you're going to live in there, and you're going to live in there, and you've no choice in the yeah. matter. And you've no choice in the matter. And you know what? You should just get on with it as if it's just a problem, you know, with, um, you know, locating. Like, you're an object, really. And it's, it is it is just... Um, I, I, I suppose I, I continue to be shocked at how callous um, the HSE is about all of this. HSE continues it, to say, Mary, that there is no alternative. When, whenever we ask them for any statement, they just say there is no alternative. That's their advice. Do you, do you, will, you, will you ever accept that? Well, to be honest, I, I find that really um, surprising, surprising because when when they have had to find money to refurbish buildings, which they did in Carrickmore, I don't know if you're aware of that I premises, am, am, yeah. that was completely, yeah, that was completely refurbished and funds were found, I think within a week or two weeks to refurbish the place and that that, that was done um uh, overnight, you know, when I say you know the funds were found, okay. so I'm 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 kind of really perplexed that um, the only service that's available in East Cork, and I was listening to Liam Quaid's um, uh, interview with you there, like this is the only service for East Cork. There isn't anything else, and they're talking about um, taking that service away. Apart from the current residents, you know, um, um, one you know with with my sister and the people who are there now, there will be no service. Yeah. Um, if this if the unit closes for East Cork, and I, I yeah, we're staying in touch with it, Mary. There's not a whole pile we can do other than give people a platform, give people a window through which to to show us what what this is like. But uh, thanks for being with me again on the opinion line. That is Mary, whose sister has been resident at Onakura for the past twenty five years, and that's her that's her home, and the people around her are her family, and the idea that they would you would walk into someone's house and say you're going there, you're going there, you're going there and you're going there because this place is no longer fit for purpose and that's the holy all of it. I can't in any way make that sound fair in my head. I don't know about you but thank you to Mary and thank you to to Liam Quaid. We had a couple of calls in about passports. Still a huge delay on the uh, renewal of passports. Think about it, you can do it online in a couple of days. But it's uh, it's taken an awful long time to do it through the traditional method. Calder says, why are the Irish people such a pushover? Those poor people in Middleton will be talking forever and their relatives will be moved. Yeah.
unfortunately. We'll come back to this. The programme today edited by Fiona Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. See you tomorrow just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.